This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for once again joining us with 30 minutes of your precious time as we discuss issues of American politics. And today, we will talk about the politics of Cuba and the United States' influence on that with the co-director for the Center of Jose Marti Studies affiliate at the University of Tampa, Dr. James Lopez. Thanks for joining us, doctor. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So it was really interesting. Uh, I recently saw a very uh, fascinating uh, documentary series on Netflix called The Cuba Libra Story. And I think the thing that really struck me was from Columbus to Castro, uh, Cuba has just been in turmoil. And we've actually had some recent uprisings there. Um, You know, the economy has been plundered by people, including the United States. Why has Cuba had that much trouble in its history? Yeah, uh, Jerry, I think that uh, that the term uh, uh, plunder maybe applies to the uh, the arrival of the Spaniards in the 16th century and the uh, uh, the, the forced colonization of, of uh, Cuba. Uh, for most of the, the colonial period, Cuba was uh, had a, a military importance because the center of the Spanish Empire, the Americas, was in Mexico and Peru. So Havana was a very fortified military garrison, uh, and the interior of the island was uh, was fairly uh, uh, uninhabited and, and undeveloped. Uh, Cuba becomes really important uh, after the Haitian uh, Revolution, when the sugar industry uh, uh, moves uh, into Cuba. And also uh, in the early 19th century, after the independence of uh, most of uh, all of South America and and, uh, Central America, Mexico, and Cuba becomes sort of the bastion of of what was left of the Spanish loyalists. And so um, in Cuba, you know, you... uh, uh, so uh, again, the, the 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 trouble in Cuba begins in the 19th century, uh, when uh, the, there's a, a struggle uh, between the eastern part of the island, uh, which had a longer tradition of being independent uh, and uh, and out of the uh, control of the the Spanish uh, colonial authorities, and the western part of the island where the sugar industry was centered and where Havana. Uh, acquired a, a, a great deal of importance. And so um, th- that's also the 19th century is when Cuba both becomes an economic, uh, of economic importance. It also becomes a, a, a nation of geopolitical importance uh, as the uh, entranceway to, uh, to, to South America and importance for shipping. Uh, and it also becomes uh, a center for uh, anti-colonial uh, uh, struggle, uh, not necessarily in, in terms of uh, Cuban independence. Uh, the first, uh, the first uh, uh, organized expeditions to overthrow the Spanish regime in Cuba uh, were led by annexationists, people who wanted to uh, Cuba to become uh, part of the United States because the United States represented uh, Cuba's most important uh, economic uh, partner. And Spain was viewed as a as a sort of 
backward, old-fashioned uh, monarch, uh, uh, monarchy uh, that was holding Cuba back from becoming a modern uh, uh, republic or becoming a, a state in the Union. Uh, so uh, uh, starting in the 1850s, there's a there's a, a repeated efforts uh, to uh, overthrow the Spanish regime, uh, but not always uh, in an attempt to uh, uh, create an independent Cuba, mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, uh, independent only of the Spanish regime, but perhaps allied with uh, the United States. And that was, and it was interesting when you mentioned, because that was really the last Spanish stronghold of the Spanish empire. And, I, you know, one of the things that was interesting to me was, you know, we hear about the British Empire, we hear about the Roman Empire, but not as much about the Spanish Empire, but they had that hold on South America, Central America, Mexico, and Cuba was really that, that last stronghold. Uh, you mentioned the United States, they came in and helped to um, make a Cuba independent, but that turmoil has carried on even through the 20s and the 30s of the last century. What, what has caused that, do you think? Uh, part of it is the the internal uh, dynamics of the uh, of the of the Cuban uh, situation. Uh, it was uh, uh, what you could call a, a nation that that lived under mediated sovereignty. You know that uh, that somehow the 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 independence movement in Cuba was uh, incomplete uh, in 1898. Uh, the United States uh, intervenes in the uh, Cuban War of Independence, which uh, was at a bit of a standstill. The, uh, the interior of the nation was in control of the uh, independence army, uh, but uh, Havana and uh, Santiago de Cuba, the, the two largest cities, were still in uh, Spanish control. The United States intervenes and negotiates directly with the uh, Spanish government uh, who uh, surrenders to the United States, not to the Independence Army. And the Independence Army is uh, uh, marginalized and, uh, and disbanded. And the United States occupies the nation for uh, three years. And in order to turn the government over to uh, uh, Cuban authorities, uh, they had to meet uh, certain uh, conditions that were set by the U.S. government. Part of this uh, at the time has to do, uh, an important part of it has to do with race, uh, because the Independence Army uh, was uh, uh, an integrated army with a, a very large contingent of Afro-Cuban uh, soldiers and, uh, and officers. And uh, the democracy that was created afterwards was uh, very much a white uh, upper middle class uh, Cuban government that was uh, uh, sort of favorable. You know, at the time, the, the, there was a, a big concern in the United States that uh, that Cubans were too primitive and too unruly mm -hmm. uh, to govern themselves, and so uh, it, it was the creation of a of a, a republic that wasn't uh, entirely autonomous or representative of the Cuban population and, and the aspirations of the uh, independence uh, movement. 
And it's interesting you bring up the, the Afro-Cubans because it was Columbus who brought them uh, to Cuba as slaves, which also, I guess, had an impact on the United States to do the same. Well, uh, that, that's certainly uh, uh, true. Uh, Cuban slavery, though, really uh, uh, becomes uh, an enormous phenomenon in the early 19th century with the arrival of the sugar economy. Uh, and that's where uh, enormous numbers of uh, African slaves are brought to work on the sugar plantations in a particularly brutal uh, iteration of the uh, of the slave trade. And by the 1840s, 1850s, the uh, black population of Cuba is larger than the uh, white population. Mm -hmm. And one of the great fears of the, the white uh, planter class is the possibility of a of a race war mm -hmm. in Cuba. And that, that was always one of the biggest fears of the uh, ruling classes in, in Cuba. And one that the Spanish utilized, you know, to uh, maintain support uh, to, uh, you know, uh, they would, you know, warn if uh, that they were, they were sort of the last defense against uh, a, a repeat of the Haitian revolution in Cuba. And we'll get to some more history. And I wanted to just ask you about the recent uh, protests in Cuba. Uh, you go there and, and you've been there and you've got a good pulse on the country. Uh, what's causing the latest unrest? Well, I think there's a number of factors. Uh, one is the, uh, uh, the Cuban economies in uh, free fall. There's, uh, there's a great economic hardship, food shortages, a collapse of the medical system. Uh, COVID cases are uh, on the rise. Uh, there's a there's a real uh, economic crisis, but on top of that, there's also um, uh, increased internet access, increased access to information uh, that uh, traditionally was not uh, available to Cubans uh, outside of Havana. One of the interesting things about this these protests, which these uprisings is that they occurred all over the island in, in every major uh, hmm. center in the island. That's very interesting. Um, the, other, the other thing, because there, had, there has been previous uh, uh, street protests, but they were normally confined to Havana and Santiago. This was uh, uh, nationwide. And then there's also uh, been uh, uh, an incipient fight uh, for freedom and expression in Cuba. A couple of years ago, uh, they reformed the constitution, and there was a decree. Uh, uh, I think it's a three forty uh, decree three forty two, I believe, that um, tried to curtail artistic freedom in Cuba. That there had to be an approval that they weren't going to tolerate artistic expression that was critical of the regime. And out of that, a, a, a movement arose known as the San Isidro movement uh, that, uh, that, that, that fought against this, that made uh, various protests, artistic protests. A number of artists were thrown in jail. Hmm. Uh, it was repressed. And, uh, and this movement has actually become very, uh, very powerful in Cuba. And one of its greatest expressions is a song that was uh, recently released uh, called Patria y Vida. Uh, which is a play on Fidel Castro's uh, uh, common refrain when he would end speeches is patria or muerte, uh, homeland or death. And this song is called Homeland or Life. Mm. It's become a huge phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that, that was one of the chants that you would hear all over the island uh, during these protests. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a rejection you know, of, the, of the old... Uh, uh, mythology of the regime, it's, it's uh, sort of ideological foundation. 
So it sounds like we've got a new national anthem uh, proposed here. <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so. The biggest development this year, of course, was the stepping down of Raul Castro. Uh, Raul's the, the brother of Fidel and was very instrumental in uh, overthrowing the government back in 1959 of Fugencia Batista. Um, his stepping down, um, how critical was that and um, how much of an impact has that had on the uprising starting? I think that uh, Raul Castro stepping down is a, has been a little uh, over. Uh, stated its importance because, in fact, he 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 might have uh, he hasn't really stepped down. He's still the uh, uh, power behind the throne, uh, so to speak. Uh, the the Cuban regime is made up of uh, these top generals, uh, loyalists to the Castro brothers, uh, who control the various sectors of the economy, and uh, so Raúl might very well not be the official president of Cuba anymore. But I can assure you that. No decisions, no important decisions are made in, in Cuba uh, without uh, his approval and without the consensus of these, uh, these, these generals uh, that, that control the economy. Uh, proof of that is that uh, within days of these protests, uh, Raul Castro appeared in public together with uh, uh, President Diaz-Canel uh, in, in his full military dress, embracing him publicly uh, as, a, as a show that you know, he hasn't really gone anywhere. And um, it is interesting, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel, how has he handled these protests and what are the challenges he faces as the new leader? It's it's fascinating because this is the first time in 62 years that the Castros haven't ruled Cuba. And um, what is he, what is he facing right now? Well, his first reaction was, uh, was very poor to the uh, uprising. Uh, his first television appearance, uh, he called for supporters of the revolution to go into the street and to violently confront uh, the protesters. And there's a number of uh, videos, you know, showing uh, government uh, trucks uh, being unloaded with uh, uh, people dressed as civilians uh, with uh, bats and, and pipes and weapons mm-hmm. of every mm-hmm. kind, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like shock troops. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to step back from that a little bit in a, in a, in a subsequent uh, appearance saying that, you know, he recognized that there were difficult economic conditions that would, you know, that led people to, to complain and that the government was going to be open to listening to that. But uh, it was, the, the cat was out of the bag and, you know, there's still hundreds of people who have been detained whose uh, whereabouts are unknown mm. Uh, there's hundreds of people that are under house arrest. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a significant crackdown uh, going on. So I think he has significant challenges ahead. One is, of course, the, the, his legitimacy, the, how people view him. Uh, for better or worse, you know, the Castro's sort of commanded uh, 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 a certain level of uh, 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 respect or fear from the population that Diaz-Canel does not. And and it's interesting, um, what is the, the United States has always played a role in Cuba. It's real close to our Florida border. And we were talking about the turn of the century um, into the 1900s. We had the Maine explosion, the USS Maine, and United States coming in there, as you said. What is their role now um, as this uprising is going on? 
You know, I think it's I think it's a very delicate and, and difficult situation. In a way, the United States is you know damned if they do and damned if they don't uh, uh, when it comes to Cuba. Now, on the one hand, people are uh, uh, clamoring for the United States to uh, uh, liberalize its relations with Cuba, open things up, uh, uh, to, to lessen the hardship that the Cuban population is confronting. On the other side. Uh, you know, the, the, the regime is a totalitarian regime. It's a corrupt regime. It's a failed regime. And, uh, and in a way, by opening up uh, uh, relations with Cuba, uh, you're providing a economic lifeline mm -hmm. uh, that, to, that props up that regime. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's very, uh, in my opinion, I think, I think Biden is uh, – currently doing the right thing uh, by by not simply relaxing mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the harder line stance against the regime. Uh, but on the other hand, the United States needs to avoid thinking strictly from uh, uh, the U.S.'s national interest, mm -hmm. uh, humanitarian crisis in Cuba, which is a real possibility if the regime collapses. Uh, uh, we might be faced with a, a, a terrible humanitarian crisis that that'll make the Mariel boat lift or the rafter crisis uh, uh, seem uh, tame in the, in comparison. Oh, wow, that was a big uh, that was a big event. It, it's interesting because the administration uh, Diaz Canal is is saying that it was the um, sanctions of Donald Trump that basically have caused the shortages of medicine um, and food. What's the what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the, the, the Cuba has always uh, the Cuban regime has always uh, relied on the embargo as the justification for uh, all of its own failures and shortcomings. Uh, the um, the embargo is is. Uh, in my opinion, is not quite as uh, as uh, as complete and severe as you might think. You know, Cuba still acquires most of its uh, uh, animal protein, chickens, and what have you from from the United States. Purchases it from the United States. Hmm. Um, the and 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 in historically speaking, when the United States has uh, previously attempt, attempted to liberalize relations with Cuba during when Fidel was in power, uh, that would be undermined. For example, uh, Carter. Uh, uh, made uh, some uh, effort to uh, normalize relations with Cuba, and we ended up with the Mariel crisis. Mm -hmm. Clinton tried to do the same thing, and we ended up with the brothers to the rescue mm -hmm. uh, when Fidel ordered the, the shoot down of the planes. In a mm -hmm. way, the, the 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 embargo served the Castro regime as the ultimate justification uh, uh, for everything that they were that they were doing uh, poorly. Um, and now, uh, Diaz Canel, for example, in his TV appearance, you know, of course, says that these people who are protesting are being paid by the U.S. government; that they're paid mercenaries; mm -hmm. that they're part of the the Miami mafia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you look at the people who are protesting, uh, that's and that's a big difference in this protest. These are uh, people from the poorest neighborhoods of. Uh, of Havana mm -hmm. that are out in the streets protesting. Mm -hmm. These are not people on the U.S. payroll. And um, the, the um, what is the support of the people um, for the regime? When I, I remember when Fidel Castro died, um, a lot of people in the streets, uh, you know, praising him and, and cheering and, you know, kind of 
you know, holding him up as, um, you know, a, a major figure. Um, how many, how, how much is that still there? You know, I, I think that, uh, uh, I do not think that, that, that there's widespread uh, support for the regime. I think that it depends partly on where you are in the country. The farther you're out in the countryside, I think that uh, support uh, increases. Uh, that could be uh, in large part because of the uh, lack of, uh, of information. You know, for, for 62 years, uh, uh, all information in Cuba was, was controlled by the government. Mm -hmm. uh, I think part of it is uh, there's, you know, there's some nationalistic uh, 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 belief, you know, you've been told for 60 years that if that the revolution is the only thing standing between you and, uh, and a takeover, uh, by, uh, by the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of it as well. Um, I think that, I think that most Cubans realize that, uh, that the, that the promise of the Cuban revolution, uh, is a failed promise and that mm -hmm. the revolution has failed them. Uh, I think there's also a fear factor uh, because there is a lack of civil society in Cuba. The revolution did not allow the formation of civil uh, uh, groups outside mm -hmm. of the revolution. Uh, no one knows uh, what, uh, what could happen if the regime collapses. So I think that's also part of it as well. And um, the uh, one of the things in, in your 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 uh, studies is named after Jose Marti, and then you look at Castro. And one of the things that all the successful revolutions um, in the years of Cuba, they always had a, a prominent leader, someone to kind of take command of. It is there not that leader now? Will there be that leader? I hope not. I think that Cuba. Uh, uh, in a way, uh, it, it, it you know there's there's a lot of uh, local leaders in Cuba. These artists, the leader of the uh, San Isidro movement, uh, other uh, uh, local uh, groups. Cuba doesn't, uh, um, in a way, that one of the like I was saying before, the revolution eliminated civil society, and and everything had to run to the party, and there were no spaces for civil discourse and dialogue. And uh, and so I, I, Cuba has not been served by the uh, the strongman, the caudillo figure, mm -hmm. uh, somebody who's going to come and save the country. I, I think if Cuba is going to have a a prosperous future, they need to there needs to be the development of uh, civil organizations, political parties, uh, multipolar uh, uh, society, not everything funneled through uh, some charismatic uh, figure. Um, and there, you know, there are, there are a number of, uh, uh opposition figures in Cuba that, that could potentially play a role in the future of the country, but it's hard to tell because the, the Cuban government has eliminated, uh, uh, uh all other, uh, hmm. All of these options, you know. And in terms of the economy, we talked a little bit about sugar and, and rum and tobacco, which were, and it always seemed that people came in and, and took the took over those companies, took over that business. And I, we were talking about the United States at the turn of the nineteen, in the early nineteen hundreds. Um, you know, they did come in, they helped free Cuba, but they also took over a lot of the economy. What's the economy like today? Well, the economy's. Uh, uh, it's in a shambles, but it is more diverse. Uh, sugar doesn't play a very important role in uh, in the Cuban economy and more. Uh, 
you know, the, the, the Cuban economy is uh, propped up by uh, uh, Venezuelan uh, oil, uh, by remittances from the Cuban American community, sending money back to their family, tourism, uh, some uh, biotech, uh, some uh, nickel mining, uh, and um, these are the these are the, the 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 main sectors of the economy, but uh, none of them are are doing particularly uh, well. Uh, this uh, you know the the, the centralized uh, uh, state controlled economy has uh, has proven to be uh, inefficient and and incapable of providing uh, for its people. So it is a more it is a more uh, diverse uh, economy, but not a more uh, successful com- uh, economy. And you mentioned Venezuela and the oil, and we've talked about the impact of the United States on Cuba, but how much of an impact does the fate of South American countries such as Venezuela have on Cuba? Well, Venezuela is a, um, essentially became the lifeline uh, for Cuba after, after uh, Hugo Chavez became president. And uh, the Venezuelans essentially subsidized the Cuban economy by providing it all the all the petroleum it needed in exchange for uh, Cuba uh, providing security services, internal security uh, for the for the Venezuelan state. Uh, Many people don't know this, but the the Venezuelan security apparatus is uh, is run by the Cubans who are very good at uh, at internal security Mm -hmm. and uh, and also the uh, exportation. I forgot to mention this before of uh, doctors, you know, one of the sort of goals or one of it was considered one of the great uh, uh, accomplishments of the revolution was this uh, production of uh, doctors, more doctors than they needed. Cuba produced many, many doctors, more, more doctors than, than engineers, which uh, maybe uh, would have been better. And so they export these doctors to uh, countries, including Venezuela and throughout Latin America and through Africa as a way to uh, acquire uh, uh, currency, uh, to, uh, to cash currency, uh, to, to purchase uh, uh, imports, to pay for their imports. So uh, uh, Venezuela also became a center you know, for Cuban export doctors and security services in exchange for petroleum. Uh, in fact, yesterday, uh, Maduro in Venezuela uh, increased the export of uh, oil uh, to Cuba. So they're still very, very dependent. If the Venezuelan regime collapses, Cuba will find itself in a really uh, difficult spot again. And we talk about uh, the United States and uh, well, you mentioned what Cuba calls the Miami Mafia, but there are a lot of uh, Cuban-Americans here, many of their families uh, coming over after the revolution. What kind of role are they playing right now? You know the the role of the of the of Cubans in the United States vis-a-vis Cuba has always been uh, uh, paradoxical and uh, and and interesting. Uh, going back to the 19th century, you know, the War of Cuban Independence uh, was organized and financed uh, from the United States, from among the Cuban uh, communities in uh, New York and Key West and and New Orleans and other places. Uh, now. On the one hand, uh, the, the Cuban American community uh, pr- has, has has pressured the U.S. government into taking a harder line stance to Cuba and, and not opening up to Cuba entirely. But on the other hand, 
they've been the community that have uh, uh, assisted the regime by sending remittances to their families, you know, mm -hmm. by providing mm -hmm. this sort of lifeline mm -hmm. uh, to uh, to Cubans uh, on the island. Uh, so it's a it's you know it's a it's a, 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 a contradictory uh, sort of relationship. You know? On the one hand, uh, politically, uh, they uh, support a hard line to to the regime and to mm -hmm. overthrowing that regime. But on the other hand, because of family ties, uh, they're they're one of the most important sources of income uh, for Cubans uh, on the island. And um, you know we we talk about that relationship and i think the biggest um you know development was that bay of pigs evasion uh the attempt it was 1963 was it um where 62 63 62 mm -hmm. uh, okay so um i one of the great uh stories i got to cover as a reporter i got to interview a couple veterans from the bay of pigs invasion and it was really sad to hear them because they were saying they were on the beach with their rifles uh you know they're being shot at and they could see the american warships off on the shore and they're waiting for that support which never came of course kennedy uh pulled back that support and never provided it as he stated he would uh what what how big was that? How big was that failure? Well, you know, I think the Bay of Pigs had a had an enormous impact at that time uh, in the context of the Cold War and what was viewed as the uh, anti-imperial struggle, the post-colonial struggle that was taking place throughout throughout the world from ex-colonies, and uh, and certainly the United States had a had a fraught uh, uh, history of intervention in uh, in Latin American countries. And so it provided the Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution with an enormous uh, uh, public relations victory mm -hmm. uh, that they could uh, use uh, to to show the world that in, that in fact uh, the United States was intent on overthrowing the regime and that and that the regime was capable of withstanding that mm -hmm. and providing an example uh, to the rest of uh, to the rest of Latin America. So I think a lot of uh, a lot of the, the the sort of sympathetic will that still exists towards the Cuban Revolution derives from those uh, from that period, which is viewed as a sort of his, uh, heroic stage of the mm -hmm. revolution. No, mm -hmm. uh, even though you know in the, in subsequent decades the the revolution became uh, a, a very sort of typical uh, totalitarian communist dictatorship, uh, people still uh, emotionally. Uh, were attracted to that to that uh, underdog mm -hmm. uh, uh, revolutionary uh, movement, and also mm -hmm. another another consequence of that is that the the, the support in the Cuban American community, the historical support for the Republican Party, because Kennedy uh, pulling back his support, mm -hmm. uh, uh, wow. you know that yeah. that was a that was an yeah. act that was never forgotten or forgiven. Yeah, uh, here we are talking about it <laughs> sixty yeah. years later. But uh, but um, you know, in terms of uh, going forward, um, you know, what do you see? I, I think when Raul Castro, I, I'm, I'm, we're broadcasting from St. Petersburg, and you're in Tampa, and when Raul Castro announced that he would not play the role that he was playing, uh, there seemed to be some hope here that hey, this was the end of communism. We're going to finally, you know, make this a democratic country um you're seeing through the unrest as you mentioned that the government is very much ready to at least will fight back but what do you see happen do you see an end of communism 
in the horizon? Do you what do you see happening there? You know, unfortunately, I'm not I'm not I'm not very optimistic about the future, uh, the immediate future of, of Cuba. Cuba does not have a, a democratic tradition. There mm-hmm. is no there mm-hmm. is no tradition of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of a democratic system in Cuba. Uh, currently, Cubans, uh, everyday Cubans, are in a desperate. Uh, situation. The, the rafters, uh, the numbers of rafters trying to get to the United States is increasing. Mm-hmm. There's thousands of Cubans trying to make the very dangerous trek through Central America and Mexico, trying to cross into our southern border. Mm. Um, there's, you know, there's this attempt to, to flee. Uh, the The Cuban regime, as I, I, I expressed uh, before, is really uh, controlled by uh, a handful of uh, generals mm-hmm. and the armed forces. So um, I don't see the regime collapsing. I see maybe the possibility of an overthrow uh, led by some of these uh, generals mm-hmm. uh, to retain that, that and, and, and it's anybody's guess whether uh, we're talking about an authoritarian regime that is more open uh, to capitalism and to free market society that would allow for the creation of some civil uh, discourse, some civil groups are, if we're talking about uh, uh, just a a return to some sort of draconian repressive regime. I think that one, uh, when I think of of the future Cuba, I, I think of places like Myanmar, I think of places like uh, like Iran, perhaps uh, uh, these uh, areas where the uh, military interest there is some some sort of civil society, uh, but that the the real power uh, resides in the uh, in the armed forces, and they're the determinant of uh, of how much uh, freedom and how much uh, uh, free market is allowed to to take place. So I, I, I don't see I don't see any I, I think that the idea that the regime is going to collapse and there's going to be a democracy in Cuba. Uh, I just I don't think that that's realistic. I think that the perhaps the best the United States could hope for is the emergence of a, uh, a more liberal faction within the armed mm-hmm. forces in Cuba mm-hmm. that could long term lead to some sort of a transition to a civil society. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, 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 frankly, I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see a, a democracy flourishing in Cuba anytime soon. So tell us about the Center for Jose Marti Studies. First, tell our listeners who Jose Marti was. Jose Marti was the, uh, the political leader of the Cuban uh, Revolutionary Party, which uh, was the party that organized and uh, and financed the final war of independence, which took place from 1895 to 1898. He was also an extraordinary uh, uh, writer, journalist, novelist, poet, translator, uh, thinker. uh, he's studied uh, in a wide variety of uh, disciplines, and he's also the, the national symbol uh, of of Cuba. Uh, he's sort of the the, the spiritual sort of uh, leader of uh, of the Cuban nation, uh, the inventor, you can almost say, of uh, of the idea of Cuba as a as a as a nation, as a multiracial nation, as mm-hmm. a uh, as a uh, a, a nation uh, 
uh, with its own particular character. Uh, he lived most of his life here in the United States, 18 years uh, in the United States. He was exiled from Cuba, lived a very, uh, just a fascinating and, and very dramatic uh, life. He died at the very beginning of that War of Independence in 1895. Uh, and uh, he is uh, evoked or invoked by uh, every uh, political spectrum in Cuba. The, the, it's the one thing that uh, that the, the hardline communists and the hardline anti-communists and everybody in between has in common is an enormous admiration uh, for this uh, for this figure. Uh, I, I would only, I would add one thing about Marti that why was he successful when so many others were not in bringing uh, all all the sectors of the Cuban uh, uh, polity together. Uh, is because uh, what happened here in Tampa. Uh, he was uh, living in New York, and uh, uh, he was one among many uh, voices uh, uh, clamoring for, for Cuban independence. And he came here to Tampa and to Key West and, and discovered among the, the very large Cuban cigar-working communities here in Florida uh, his natural constituency. And, uh, and, and here is where he emerged as the leader of this uh, broad coalition of Cuban groups that that were able to actually bring about the the successful independence of uh, of Cuba, and the center. What does the center um, do? We study. Uh, well, we've uh, we do a number of things: uh, uh, academic research into uh, these early uh, Cuban communities here in Florida, in Tampa, and in Key West. Uh, we recently had a uh, National Endowment for the Humanities uh, grant, a very large grant, uh, where we brought uh, scholars and academics from throughout the United States and, uh, and Mexico here to Tampa for uh, a month uh, to study the, the early history of Tampa and the cigar workers and the role of Jose Martí uh, among them. And uh, we just recently had a, another conference uh, uh, on that, on those same topics. And we're currently, I just got back a couple of days ago from Spain. We're currently working on another large grant, trying to recover the hundreds of uh, Spanish language newspapers that were published by the Cuban emigrants uh, uh, here in the United States in the late 19th century, which is an enormous historical research uh, or resource rather. And uh, these newspapers, many, 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 many have been lost, and they're, they're, but they, they're appearing in archives in Spain and wow. Cuba and New York. And, mm. uh, and, and so we have a, a number of scholars working with us trying to recover, digitize these papers so that mm. uh, people can, can use them as a, as a resource. So you mentioned Jose Marti. He came out of the arts. We've got the arts percolating in Cuba again. So maybe we'll see. <laughs> we'll see the artist uh, take over again. This has been that would a be treat. great. Yes, this has been a treat, and I could talk to you for a couple of hours yeah. on this because it's fascinating country, and we really appreciate you uh, coming on with us, and, and wish you nothing uh, but the best in your studies. Um, you know your role and the role of those who provide information as you mentioned on the internet is critical as it has always been with any country uh, trying to seek uh, freedom so we appreciate your time
Thank you very much, Sherry. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And we want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods, Dave, our announcer, and of course, uh, our uh, voice contributing talent, John, the one take turns is the voiceover table day. And we will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. And until then, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.